All right, today we're going to be, like I said, in Galatians 3, 6 to 9. Um, and a few weeks ago, we studied verse 1 through 5 of chapter 3, but they kind of go together, so I'm going to start out my reading with verse 1 to 5, but we're really studying verse 6 to 9 today. So if you guys could follow along in your Bibles or on the screen. Paul writing says, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Verse six, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Lord, we come to you this morning and we want to commit the next few minutes into your hands, asking, Lord, that you take these timeless truths and refresh us in them, embed them into our hearts. And Father, I want to thank you. Thank you for the simplicity of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel, that none of us is standing here before you, a friend of you in your family because of our piety or religiosity or merit or good works, but we're here because of the good work of another. And as we've trusted in it, you have deposited righteousness into our account because of him and not because of us. And so, Lord, we pray that we would grow in this faith that I'm celebrating in this prayer this morning. Thank you that by simple faith, you place us into the family of Abraham. And Lord, we pray that we'd rejoice in that today as we think about it in your word. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. Well, the, the book of Galatians, just to remind you, it's been a few weeks since we've been studying it together, but the book of Galatians is a letter that details a struggle for and over the gospel of grace. Uh, Paul was around in the first century. He was an apostle, one of the major uh, leaders in the early church, the first century church. Uh, before Paul had become a Christian, he was a Pharisee, so a religious leader in Judaism. He was, of course, Jewish. Uh, but when he became a Christian, God began to speak to him right away that one of the major thrusts of his life was going to be to take the gospel message not to the Jewish world, but to the non-Jewish world, to the Gentiles, to the nations. And when Paul went to the nations, including regions like Galatia, uh, he declared to them that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, uh, that he rose from the dead according to the promises of God, and that if they believed in Jesus, if they trusted in Jesus, they could be forgiven and cleansed from all unrighteousness and brought into the family of God. And one of the things that Paul did not say 
was that they needed to become Jewish, that they needed to adopt Judaism, or that they needed to embrace the ceremonial legal code of the Old Testament law. But after Paul left Galatia, and unfortunately other regions that Paul left, false teachers came in behind him. And what they told these Galatian believers is that to be real Christians, to be true Christians, they had to adopt those Jewish practices. They had to adopt the Old Testament Mosaic law. They had to become, in one sense, Jewish in order to be true believers. And their claim was that, you know, Paul is a great guy, but he's kind of a rogue operative. He's contrived this message in his own imagination, but this isn't the scriptural uh, Emphasis. This isn't true biblically. He's preaching a new message. So in response to that, Paul wrote the book of Galatians. And the book, to remind you, is comprised of three main parts. We've already studied the first third or the first main part. And that part is an autobiographical argument. It's where Paul defends his story. Because since we people were saying, oh, he made this up, He's not really received by the early church. Paul told his story, and part of his story was, hey, from the very beginning, the apostles had every chance to reject my message. The church in Jerusalem had every chance to reject my message, and, and nobody did. They, they embraced me. They gave me and my companions the right hand of fellowship. Nobody was compelled to become Jewish if they were Gentile and now believers. And so I don't know why you guys are saying that my story doesn't match up with the gospel. So he defended the gospel of grace with his story first. The second portion of the letter is Paul's theological argument. It's where he goes back to the scripture. It's probably the portion of Galatians that you have to put your thinking cap on for the most because he goes back into the Old Testament to demonstrate that the gospel of grace is a biblical message. And then the last third of the book, probably a favorite section for many of us today, is his ethical argument. You see, people were saying that the gospel of grace was so simple that people were bound to take advantage of God, that the gospel of grace would produce immoral people, uh, people who say, if it's that easy for me to be saved, if all I have to do is just simply believe in this gospel message, I'll just then go and live however I want to live. And that kind of concept was anathema to Paul because to him, a person who'd really encountered Jesus was zealous for Christ. Uh, would lay their lives down in love for other people and was filled with the Spirit and would demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit coming out of their lives. So here in Galatians 3, this section that we just read, this is the beginning of Paul's theological argument or his theological defense. Now at this point, he's already defended his own story and he's told the Galatians to remember their own conversion story. That's what we actually read in verse one through five, which we studied a few weeks ago. He reminded them that when he came to Galatia, he clearly portrayed Jesus's death on the cross for them, and they believed that message. And when they did, the unmistakable presence of God, the presence of the Holy Spirit, began to flood their churches and flood their bodies, and they knew this to be true. But in our passage today, 
Paul moves past their personal experience that the gospel of grace is true, and he shifts to scriptural evidence that the gospel of grace is true. And to prove his point from the pages of the Bible, uh, Paul calls a star witness. Don't you love that? Like in a, dra- a, a legal drama where there's some star witness that's waiting in the wings and then, your honor, I call to the stand and everybody just gets quiet. Well, Paul calls to the stand Abraham. He brings out Abraham. Now, Abraham and his story, they were the perfect way to combat the false teachers who had come to Galatia. You see, those false teachers had repeatedly appealed to Moses and the law as pinned through Moses. They'd continually said things like, hey, Moses said that men should be circumcised. Or Moses said that we should keep the Sabbath. Or Moses gave religious festivals for us to follow. Or Moses inaugurated the sacrificial system or the purity laws. Or Moses gave us these works as a way to be God's children. So when Paul trots out Abraham, it was a devastating and strategic move because Abraham predated Moses by over half a millennium. And he was widely considered by everyone, including the false teachers, as the prototype of godliness. Every person of Jewish descent looked up to Abraham. The false teachers loved Abraham, and clearly God loved Abraham as well because he blessed Abraham's life. So Paul holds out Abraham as his first scriptural proof that the gospel of grace is true. And what he highlighted are really just two main things. He highlighted the belief of Abraham, and he highlighted the blessing attached to Abraham. And I thought we could spend the rest of our time today considering both of those things. First, uh, Paul focused on Abraham's belief uh, by in verse six, if you look again in your Bibles, quoting from Genesis 15, verse six, when he said, Abraham, quote, believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, for some of you, you don't know who Abraham is. This might be one of the first times you've even come to church, and if so, welcome. And so talk of Abraham is not something you're very familiar with. Uh, Abraham's story basically began in the early chapters of the book of Genesis, after the Noahic flood, after the world had become repopulated to a degree. God spoke to this man. Uh, At the beginning of his story, he's called Abram, and later his name is changed to Abraham. And God spoke to Abraham and called him away from his homeland and away from his extended family to a place that God would show him, promising him a land that his descendants would inhabit and that somehow, someday, his descendants would become a nation that would bless all the nations on the earth. So Abraham believed that, and he set out on this journey of obedience uh, with God. And because God had promised Abraham descendants that were very numerous, uh, Abraham waited for a child to be born. He thought, if God's gonna give me a really big family, I'm gonna have to have at least one kid. But the years ticked by, and he and his wife had no children. So one day in Genesis 15, 
Abraham had a conversation with God. He says, God, if I were to die today, my servant, a man named Eliezer, he would become the sole inheritor of my entire estate, my entire household. He would be the one who takes everything. And he seems to kind of have been asking God, God, is your promise going to be fulfilled through my servant, Eliezer? God responded to him this way. He said, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. It's this passage, this story from Genesis 15 that Paul quotes right here in the sixth verse of Galatians chapter three. It's the story that gave Paul sound scriptural footing for preaching the gospel of grace. Abraham, in other words, was not made righteous by completing religious tasks, but by believing in the massive promise that God had given. And this is how all of God's Old Testament saints were made righteous. They trusted God and the promises that he had made. And the Galatians were made righteous in the same way as well, just as you and I are made righteous in this same way. God has made us and the Galatians a massive promise. He's told us, I have sent my son to live the perfect life on your behalf, to die on your behalf on the cross, and I've raised him back to life so that if you believe in him, you will be forgiven and cleansed, righteous in my sight. It's a massive promise, and our responsibility is to place our faith or trust in the promise that God had made. Just like Abraham, we've received a big promise. Just like Abraham, faith in God and the promise he's made is required. And just like Abraham, the result is the righteousness of God flowing into our bodies. What does it mean that Abraham's belief in God's promise was counted to him as righteousness? What it means is that when Abraham believed in God's promise, God orchestrated a trade. Abraham's belief or faith was counted as righteousness. God credited Abraham with righteousness that did not inherently belong to him. Now this imputation, this accreditation, this accounting, this declaration, that's what happens to you and me when we place our trust in Christ's substitutionary death. Like a judge declaring a guilty defendant not guilty, God declares every believer in Christ as righteous. Like a banker declaring a debtor free of all debt, God declares anyone who leans on the sacrifice of his son as without debt and righteous. And it seems that a major ramification of this truth is that it shows that it's possible to be loved and accepted by a perfect and holy God while we ourselves are imperfect and unholy. 
And the reason this works out is because God deposits sinlessness and perfection into our account because he takes what belongs to Jesus and he transfers it to us, thereby releasing the love of God and acceptance of God upon our lives. This should be a marvelously freeing thing to know that God does not embrace us because of our, our, our personal virtue or our piety. The thing God looked for among the Galatians more than anything else was not circumcision or any other religious act. What God wanted more than anything else was belief in his only begotten son. You know, a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, we celebrated Christmas, of course, and I'm sure some of you on that Christmas weekend, whether it was Christmas Eve or Christmas Day or some other day surrounding it, you probably had a favorite gift that you looked forward to giving. You know, something to you that maybe you were involved in picking it out, you felt like it was a surprise, uh, you felt like it wasn't just, you know, item number 17 on the person's Amazon wish list or whatever, but you felt like, I really put my heart into this, and I really think they're gonna be excited. I, I can't wait to see how they respond. And as they're opening up the gift, you're watching their hands, you're looking at their face, because you want to see the excitement, you want to see the joy, you want to see the appreciation. You want to hear them say things like, I can't believe you did this. I can't believe you remembered. That's so amazing that you would do this for me. Well, like someone giving a massive gift and waiting for the recipient to explode with happiness, God gave the most valuable of all gifts when he gave his son. And the response that he looks for is for a person to explode with joy in faith over that gift. God cherishes those who believe in what he has given. And when God finds people like that, people who do not trample the Son of God underfoot, but regard him as the most precious treasure, God accounts their faith as righteousness before him. He embraces them. He accepts them. Now, before I go on to talk about Abraham's blessing, the blessings attached to Abraham, I want to encourage you to not only believe in the concept of justification by faith or celebrate it in your history if you're a believer today. But if you're a believer today, I wanna urge you to keep on believing the magnificent promises of God. You're not accepted for your religiosity or your piety on day one of your walk with God, nor are you accepted on day 1,000 of your walk with God because of those things. What God continues to look for is for trust and faith in him. We continue in the Christian life, in other words, in the same way that we began, by faith. As the Bible says over and over again, the just will live by their faith. And the more we believe and trust God, the better, I think, life is. I recently was reading in Joshua, just in my morning reading time, and so I came again across the story of Caleb. I love Caleb's story. As a younger man, Caleb believed God. He was one of the 12 spies that Moses sent into the promised land on a recognizance mission to report back on what was in the land. 
And Caleb was one of only two spies along with Joshua to believe that even though there were impressive military forces in the promised land, God could give them the victory. But the other 10 spies doubted the power of God, did not believe the promise of God. They said, we're like grasshoppers in the sight of these enemies. We surely will be defeated. And unfortunately, the population, the people of Israel, God's family, they believed the 10 rather than Caleb and Joshua, the two. And so God declared that that generation, the unbelieving adult generation, uh, though they were his, though they belonged to him, uh, because of their lack of belief in him, they'd be kept out of the promised land and would actually die off in the wilderness. They would still have incredible experiences with God. They would get to see the tabernacle constructed, the glory of God in the sacrificial system, the development of the priesthood. They got to see wonderful things, but they wouldn't get to be the generation that went into the land of promise, except for two of them. God said that Joshua and Caleb would go into the land. And when you get to the midway point of the book of Joshua, it's the story of the people of Israel going into the promised land, and Caleb appears. He comes to Joshua after they've won a few battles, and he says to Joshua, hey, General Joshua, I am just as strong today as I was 40 years ago. Now, I don't know if that was true or not, but I just imagine Caleb with his old PE sweatpants on and doing some old man stretches like, I still got it, you know, doing the windmill thing or whatever. <laughs> he said, God can give me the victory. And what he asked for were not lowlands or plains or already taken villages, he said, give me the mountain country where the Anakim, the giants, the fiercest competitors live. God will give me the victory. I believed back then, and I believe now. And as, as I was reading his story, it just struck me. I, I believe that every man in Israel at that time would have looked at Joshua and Caleb as the ideal man. Uh, every other man from Joshua and Caleb's generation was dead. They were the only two that were alive, the only two that were thriving, the only two that were making it. And what was the ingredient that had set them apart? It was that they trusted God. And so my encouragement is that we would be a people who keep on believing, that that initial faith would blossom into a life of trust in the Lord. All right, so that's a little bit about Abraham's belief, but now I want to consider, secondly, Abraham's blessing. Now, we already saw how God blessed Abraham with righteousness, but there's also the blessing of the promise that God said that he would perform. Uh, Paul alludes to this in verse eight. He quotes again from Genesis, a different part of Genesis, uh, verse, uh, ch chapter 12, verse one and three, when he says, the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, and here's the quote from Genesis, in you shall all the nations be blessed. All right, so somehow um, Abraham's life was going to bless the whole world. That was the promise. And of course, that's what happened as we look back on this story when Jesus came. Uh, as a descendant of Abraham, Jesus' life became the mechanism whereby the Abrahamic blessing could flow to anybody in any nation who believes in Christ. 
But then Paul said this astounding thing in verse nine. Look at it with me. He said, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. In other, in other words, if, if you're a believer today, if you've trusted in Christ today, if you, if you are a true Christian today, what this says is that you have been given a passport into the same blessings that Abraham received in some sense. Now we've already explored the overarching blessing of imputed righteousness that Abraham received, but what did that look like in his life? What doors does God's gift of righteousness unlock for us today? What doors did it unlock for Abraham? Many things, but I just wanna mention a handful. One blessing that faith unlocks is that it puts you into God's family. You know, when Abraham stepped out of his homeland and left his family in obedience to God, he was moving towards God's promise to make his family like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. In other words, that step of faith was inaugurating a great and glorious family of God. He was the first member of that family, uh, but it would become the new family uh, that God would work through. And Paul said that it's those, in verse seven, of faith who belong to that family, who are the sons or the daughters of Abraham. What that means is that faith in Christ makes you into the spiritual offspring of Abraham. Now, Galatians is gonna explore this a little bit further, but to me, it's a great blessing to know that if you're a believer in Jesus, you've been brought into Abraham's heritage and Abraham's family. You know, when I was a, a boy in church, we used to, you know, sing this song that I, I didn't really know the meaning of it when we were singing it, but it was a really exciting song to sing. And it was all about how Father Abraham had many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham. And we would look around and we'd say, I am one of them and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. And we had like this arm swing thing, right arm, left arm. And uh, Riley's gonna close the service with this song uh, in a few minutes. I really didn't know what it was about. I knew that my dad's name was Bill, not Abraham. Uh, but as time has gone by, I've come to understand that this means that by faith in Christ, I've been brought into, spiritually, Abraham's family. And that dumbfounds me because when I read the Old Testament, I see the richness of that heritage. It's amazing that I get to be, to some degree, part of that. Some of you guys are those people, like, you know all about your family tree. You know, you've done the deep recon to, like, the 16th generation in the past, you know, and all of that. I'm not one of those people, you know. Like, I've, I feel like I barely knew know my grandparents, and then, like, it's all a little fuzzy past that, you know. And, and uh, you know, I'll ask my parents, like, where are we from? It's like, oh, we're really not sure, you know. <laughs> you could do a DNA test, and you could probably zero it into a continent, but... <laughs> You could probably already guess which one that is, so why would you do that? <laughs> but for me, it's such a blessing to be able to say, why, well, this is my heritage. I'm a child of Abraham. I love this. I recently heard a, a story from a professional skateboard legend, Tony Hawk. He's 53 years old now, but he was kind of an iconic figure in my childhood. And uh, he tells this story that when, when he was uh, 
he was the youngest of all his siblings by a lot. His mom had him when she was in her early 40s. And uh, because she didn't have the energy of a, of a mother who was 25 years old, she just had a tough time keeping up with him because he was just a wired little guy, just as you can imagine. He's Tony Hawk, you know? I mean, he was just all over the place. And uh, he tells his story. He says, you know, one day she got so upset with me. She said, Tony, if you, if you don't knock it off, if you don't calm down, I'm going to flush myself down the toilet. <laughs> and... Uh, that did not dissuade him at all. So she went in the bathroom and she flushed the toilet and then she, head, she hid behind the door. And he was just a little boy. He ran in the bathroom just as the water was swirling down. And he said, I just lost it. I started crying. You know, I thought my mom had flushed herself down the toilet. And I, I think she let him sit with it for a little while, you know. But what happened to him was that one day his older brother was cruising around on a skateboard and he got on it for the first time and he said, that was it. I had a focus, my energy was put in a different direction. I, be, I just changed, everything changed when I got that focus. And it just reminded me of what happens to us when God brings even the craziest of us into his family. He wants us in his family. And when he brings us into his family, he gives us, he fills our hands with a purpose. He fills our hands with identity. He fills our hands with meaning far superior to uh, any athletic pursuit, far, far greater than skateboarding. He fills our lives with real significance and meaning. I love this, that God brings us into his family, just as he brought Abraham into his family. As believers in Christ, the Bible says we are adopted into God's family. Another blessing that faith unlocks is uh, friendship with God. You see this all throughout Abraham's life. This is one of the uh, biblical ways to describe Abraham. In the both Old and New Testament, Abraham is called a friend of God. And if you think about it, as long as the foundation of our relationship with God is our performance, our good works, our piety, our religiosity. If that's the foundation of our relationship with God, we don't stand a chance at friendship. But if faith is the foundation of our relationship, then like Abraham, we can truly become friends with God. It's a covenant of grace through faith that unlocks this new way of relating to him, no longer by works of the law, but by the imputed righteousness of Christ. You're not there hanging out with God based on your performance or, you know, today, God, that today was a three-chapter in the Bible day. You know, I read three chapters this morning, so now we're really friends. We're best friends. Like, that's not the way that it works with God. He's not impressed with those things. You're covered in the righteousness of Christ because of the faith that you've placed in the promise of God. As David wrote, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. When you respond in reverence to the gospel of Christ, you become a friend of God, and this is incredible. Uh, recently, I, I had this experience. I was walking in the morning, and I, I kind of have the same morning routine on most mornings, and I'll go on a on a little walk from my house. And so because I go at the same time, there's lots of other people like me who also have their routine. And so we kind of have gotten to know each other over the years, say hello each day or whatever. 
And I don't always bring my dog, but lately I've been bringing my dog Max with me. He's this wiry little Jack Russell Terrier. He's just a crazy guy, so he needs to be walked a lot. And so that recently we were out, and there are these two men that we've walked by dozens and dozens of times. Max has seen these guys over and over again, but normally they just say hi to me. But on this particular day, for whatever reason, as we were walking by, one of them said, what's your dog's name? And I said, his name's Max. And they said, hey, Max, and they started talking to him. And, and Max freaked out. To him, it was like, well, these guys, they know me, you know? And for like half a mile, he just kept turning around like, hey, those are my friends back there. We're, we're tight. Those guys, they knew my name. <laughs> I was just cracking up watching him. This is a humorous way of saying, as much as my little pup is blown away by his new friends, to me it's amazing that the living God says to you and says to me, I want to be friends with you. I want you to know me. I want to know you. I want to walk with you. I want to enjoy you. I want you to enjoy me. It's amazing. We get that by faith, not by works. And I think the last thing I'd say about this blessing that we get is that faith unlocks the blessing of a changed life. You know, some people wonder, and even the false teachers in Galatia were wondering if justification by faith would lead to an immoral people. You know, the, the gospel just being too cheap, too free, too easy, and the bar not set high enough. And people sometimes wonder that. Is sanctification in any way, uh, personal growth and transformation in any way attached to uh, faith, attached to justification? Uh, but it does. Justification and sanctification, and I think you could also say glorification, our final destination, what we're going to become in the sight of God, they're inseparable. They both have their source in the infinite love and free grace of God. They are both accomplished by faith. In justification, we rely on the cross of Jesus to justify us, and in sanctification, we rely on the Holy Spirit that Jesus deposited into our bodies to change and transform us. It's done by faith. Dallas Willard once said that sanctification is not the result of mere human effort, but a regenerate will interacting with the constant overtures of grace from God. And I think this is what we see when we take an honest look at Abraham's life and story in the book of Genesis. Justifying faith unlocked a life of sanctification and personal growth in Abraham's life. A life responding, to borrow from Dallas Willard, to the constant overtures of God's grace. Faith in God, trust in God, is what transformed Abraham. It's the thing that led him to leave his homeland in the first place, to do something really uncomfortable. You don't do that if you don't trust the one inviting you into that brand or that level of life. It, it's faith or trust in the Lord that led him in a moment where his nephew Lot was captured by a foreign army to say, I'm totally outnumbered and outgunned, but I believe that God is with me and I'm gonna go to try to fight for my family and rescue this young man. 
It was faith that when the moment came for Abraham and Lot to go their separate ways because their households had become too prosperous to coexist off the same animal pastures together, it was faith that led him to say to Lot, hey, whatever direction you go in, I'll just go in the opposite direction. You can have first pick. I trust that even if you choose the greenest grass and the best pastures, my God will supply all of my need according to his riches and glory. It was trust that brought him to the place of even offering his son Isaac up on the altar to God. He trusted God. Though to us, when we think about Abraham, we think about his faults and his failures and the times where he hiccuped in his faith, God saw through all of that and God graciously saw this man's faith. Listen to how God describes Abraham in the book of Romans. He says, in hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah, uh, his wife's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Abraham's faith led him, in other words, to hope, even against hope, that God would fulfill his promise and that he would become a father of many nations. Even when he saw his own frailty, frailty and Sarah's infertility, he did not waver, and he continued to believe what God had clearly decreed for his life. That faith made him strong. It affected everything about him. And when we trust in God, when we believe him and his promises, our lives are changed as well. All right, let's wrap up by just thinking again about why Paul put this little discussion about Abraham here in this letter in the first place. Remember, the Galatians were being told that they needed to adopt Judaism to become true Christians. They were told that faith in Jesus is not enough, that they needed to add the customs of Moses. Uh, the false teachers had told them that they should not be expecting such a new and novel way of approaching God. The law, the ancient law, was still required. So Paul comes along and he concludes that justification by simple faith in God's promises is not at all new and is, in fact, more ancient than Moses himself. Since Abraham believed God and received righteousness, Paul said we should, verse 6, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham, or excuse me, verse 7. And since God told Abraham that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed, Paul concluded that, verse 8, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Notice how in verse seven and in verse nine, Paul, is set, Paul says, know then and so then. He's saying, this is a logical conclusion that you should come to. With a master stroke, what Paul has done is turn the tables on his opponents. They accused him of bringing something new and this strange doctrine of justification by faith. But by appealing to the Galatians' experience and Scripture's story in Abraham, Paul showed how it's justification by works that is foreign to God. Paul had not declared a 
new doctrine, a novel doctrine of the Galatians or any way else. The way of salvation was consistent through the Old and New Testament. We are saved by grace through faith. In Matthew 22, Jesus told one of his more interesting parables. It was about a wedding feast that a king gave for the population that he ruled over. It was a wedding for his prince's son. And when he sent out his servants to invite all of his guests, uh, it didn't go like it does in the Disney movies. Uh, the people weren't celebrating that the king is having a ball. Instead, his invitation was wholesale rejected by those he invited. And some of his servants were even shamefully treated, beaten, killed. So what the king did in Jesus' story was commission the rest of his servants to go to the streets, to go to the highways and the byways, to just invite as many people as they could. And the invitation that the king gave to the highways and byways must have included clothing uh, that the king would provide for them because during the wedding, he saw a man who was present but without the required wedding garment. And he told his attendants to take the man and cast him into outer darkness where there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The entire parable is outrageous. If you were there listening to Jesus tell this parable, you know, you're just kind of cruising along and you're thinking to yourself, like, maybe this will be like a miracle day. Maybe Jesus is going to multiply bread or fish again. Like, maybe we'll do something really cool. We'll tell our grandkids about this cool thing that Jesus did. And then he starts telling this story. It's outrageous. What do you mean there's a population that would reject to the point of persecution an invitation from a king to his prince's son's wedding? That's unheard of. What do you mean that there's a king who would provide everyone else that he invited with garments to wear at his son's wedding? And what do you mean that there's a king who, if you didn't wear the appropriate garments, would not just cast you out of the wedding or be like, hey, bro, you're not really dressed, this is not proper attire, but outer darkness, weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth, what do you mean? That, that's what Jesus' parable was intended to do, to shock. The strong elements of the parable are what make it memorable. The lesson is simple. We must accept and wear the garments the king provides. Do not bring your own garments. Wear the ones that he offers. And that's what this passage tells us as well in Galatians 3. The way for us to be found acceptable at God's wedding feast for his forever kingdom, first here on earth and then in the heavens and the new earth, is to accept the clothing that he has provided. By simple faith in Christ, we will be draped with the appropriate attire for God. It doesn't come by our works, but by faith in Jesus just as Abraham believed God's promise and God deposited righteousness to his account, so when we believe in Christ, we are clothed with the righteousness of God. And that is the only attire that is acceptable in his sight. Amen?